Welcome to Twill, the week in health law, the occasional podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. This episode was recorded on December 19th, 2019. I'm Nicholas Terry, a professor of law at Indiana University in Indianapolis. Why, Santa, is that you? Can it be true? Have you delivered the best holiday present ever? Three of your most talented elves to help present Twill's 2019 Naughty or Nice show? Yes, indeed. Here's Zach Buck, Professor of Law at the University of Tennessee College of Law. Professor Buck teaches bioethics and public health seminars, torts, healthcare finance and organization, healthcare regulation and quality, and fraud and abuse law. His scholarship examines the enforcement of laws that affect health and healthcare in the United States. Uh, Most recently, his writing is focused on the future of the Affordable Care Act, hopefully now with an extra footnote to the Fifth Circuit. Welcome back, Zach. (laughs) Good to be with you, Nick. Thank you so much. And here's John Cogan, Professor of Law at the University of Connecticut School of Law. Professor Cogan focuses research and teaching on healthcare organizations and finance, health law and policy, federal health programs, healthcare fraud and abuse, and health insurance law. He's the co-author of a treatise on Medicare and Medicaid bankruptcy issues, as well as the author of numerous scholarly articles on a range of health insurance topics. Your second appearance on the pod. Welcome back, John. Thank you very much. And last but not least, welcome to one of Twill's favorite elves. It's Jennifer Oliver, Professor of Law at Seton Hall Law, where she specializes in health, FDA, and evidence law. Her recent scholarship has touched on opioids, privacy protections for health information, transparency in public health litigation, and veterans law. Welcome back, Elf Oliver. Thank you, Nick, and happy holidays. So it's great to have you all here to share some eggnog and end-of-year thoughts. So first, who's been nice? Who deserves to be greeted by brightly wrapped presents? Jennifer. Oh, I have a couple picks on my list. First, I would like to give a shout out to Judge McHugh on the Eastern District of Pennsylvania. Judge McHugh's issued an opinion this October in the case Safe House versus the United States Department of Justice. In that case, um, Safe House is attempting to open and run the first supervised injection um, site in the United States. And the United States attorney opposed the operation and asked for a declaratory judgment that the uh, facility was illegal under the Federal Controlled Substance Act. Judge McHugh deserves uh, credit for his very thoughtful opinion, and we now await a decision to the Third Circuit. My honorable mentions under NICE are um, some state boards, actually, who often don't get enough credit. Two state boards of pharmacy have um, resisted uh, the DEA subpoenas this year and are in active litigation with the Drug Enforcement Agency over its widespread use of administrative subpoenas to access drug and droves and droves of patient, private patient information under the PDMPs or the state prescription drug monitoring programs. New Hampshire started the year by trying to enforce its warrant requirement. Uh, that case is now an appeal to the First Circuit. And very recently, just a few weeks ago, the Colorado Board of Pharmacy uh, followed suit. So those uh, folks are all on my nice list this year. And fine picks they are too. So I'm also going the judicial route and nominating D.C. Federal District Court Judge Bosberg. His personal journey through the intricacies of Medicaid work requirements began in 2018 with Stewart against Azar when he held that the HHS secretary acted arbitrarily or capriciously in concluding that Kentucky Health was, quote, likely to assist in promoting the objectives, unquote, of the Medicaid Act. As he noted, 
the Secretary never provided a bottom line estimate of how many people would lose Medicaid with Kentucky Health in place. This oversight is glaring, especially given that the risk of lost coverage was factually substantiated in the record. A bottom, the record shows that 95,000 people would lose Medicaid coverage, and yet the Secretary paid no attention to that deprivation. Nor did he address how Kentucky Health would otherwise help furnish medical assistance. In other words, he glossed over the impact of the state's project on the individuals whom Medicaid was enacted to protect. Next up in March of this year was Gresham against Azar, dealing with Arkansas's waiver. Once again, Judge Burzberg provides a history of Medicaid Section 1115 waivers and work requirements worthy of your students' review. The Arkansas plaintiffs argued that he neither offered his own estimates of courage loss nor grappled with comments in the administrative record projecting that the Arkansas amendment would lead a substantial number of Arkansas residents to be disenrolled from Medicaid. Those omissions, they urged, made uh, the Secretary's decision arbitrary and capricious. The court didn't mince words, Judge Boasberg saying, quote, Plaintiffs are correct. As opening day arrives, the court finds its guiding principle in Yogi Berra's aphorism. It's deja vu all over again. On the same day, Kentucky re-entered the batter's box in Stewart number two, or in the words of the good judge, the bell now rings for round two. Because, of course, the secretary defeated before reopened the Kentucky waiver request and re-approved it. In Stewart two, the secretary's major new argument was fiscal sustainability of the Medicaid program. Yet the judge noted, quote, the secretary made no finding that Kentucky Health would save the Commonwealth any amount of money or otherwise make the program more sustainable in some way. And anyway, the secretary's reliance on fiscal sustainability was arbitrary and capricious because he did not compare the benefit of savings to the consequences for coverage. This was followed by the slightly more tasty quote, uh, what this court has been saying all along is that the secretary must engage in considered analysis of the fiscal sustainability concern, both alone and relative to the issue of coverage loss. The baseball season was well underway when in July 2019, New Hampshire stepped into Judge Boasberg's ring in Philbrick against Azar. By the fourth paragraph of the opinion, the result was clear with the judge noting, quote, we have all seen this movie before. And later on the merits saying, quote, defendant's briefing does not attempt to distinguish the approval letter or the program for those in Stuart 1, Stuart 2, and Gresham. Indeed, it marches through its arguments, barely acknowledging that the court has decided these precise issues before and adversely to HHS. The judge asks, what does the secretary think about all this? Does he concur with New Hampshire's apparent view that coverage loss is going to be minimal? Or does he agree with the commenters that it's likely to be substantial? Are the coverage losses in Arkansas likely to be replicated in New Hampshire? We have no idea since the approval letter offers no hints. While defendants may well be correct that HHS does not need to provide a precise numeric estimate of coverage loss, it can hardly be disputed that the agency needs to address the magnitude of that loss. Now, recently, Judge Boasberg was cheated out of adding to his list of punchy metaphors and the opportunity to give the secretary a further tongue lashing when Indiana suspended its work requirement program just after suit was filed in his court. However, you listen to the oral arguments before the D.C. Circuit uh, back in October, uh, further lashings of the secretary were apparent there, too. So maybe Judge Boasberg will find an envelope under his festive tree containing just one word affirmed.
Zach, who's your nominee? Yes, Nick, thank you. I have a couple of submissions for consideration. So first, I'm going to nominate uh, the states of Maine and Virginia. Uh, these are the two states in which Medicaid expansion was implemented in 2019. Virginia approved expansion in the summer of 2018, and expansion was implemented on January 1st of this year. Uh, Maine had adopted expansion through a ballot referendum in November of 2017. And following the end of Governor LePage's term, Governor Janet Mills restarted implementation in January of this year. Maine also got approval for retroactive eligibility, allowing Medicaid coverage to kick in for its expansion population going all the way back to July of 2018. Of course, these two states are the newest in a continuing slow march of Medicaid expansion across the country. Nebraska, Idaho, and Utah all voted to expand in November of 2018 by ballot initiative, but have yet to implement their expansions. Uh, including D.C., there are now 37 states that have voted to expand their Medicaid programs under the Affordable Care Act. My second submission is the 11th Circuit in U.S. versus Acera Care finally released their opinion in September of 2019 after an extended period of anticipation of more than three years. Uh, the 11th Circuit, uh, in the end, crafted an opinion that was devoid of a lot of controversy, uh, adopting a relatively benign holding of the Northern District of Alabama that, quote, a mere difference of reasonable opinion between physicians without more as to the prognosis for a patient seeking hospice benefits does not constitute an objective falsehood. For those who teach in the fraud and abuse realm, they'll note that this was the case that was examining whether or not the False Claims Act action could be premised on a case in which uh, medical experts disagreed as to medical necessity. Thankfully, the court also provided some guidance for litigants, noting that an objective falsehood could be shown in three different ways. Uh, first, uh, where a certifying physician fails to review a patient's medical records or otherwise familiarize him or herself with the patient's condition before asserting that the patient is terminal. In these cases, that would be an objective falsehood. The second example they gave is where a plaintiff proves that the physician did not, in fact, subjectively believe that his patient was terminally ill at the time of certification. And third, the court said an objective falsehood could be found when expert evidence proves that no reasonable physician could have concluded that a patient was terminally ill given the relevant medical records. In each of these examples, the clinical judgment, the court continues, on which the claim is based contains a flaw that can be demonstrated through verifiable facts. Uh, overall, this opinion seemed like a relatively solid one. Uh, still, the court adopted the less controversial parts of Judge Brodure's opinion and applied the standard in a relatively straightforward way, granting a new trial for a more complete jury instruction going forward. Of course, so now the real battle will feature how the standard is operationalized in future FCA cases. My third submission is an unidentified CMS spokesperson from Monday, December 16th, just a couple of days ago. In a last-minute hiccup on Sunday, December 15th, the last evening to sign up for health insurance for 2020, healthcare.gov had a meltdown in which the website was reportedly glitchy and then ultimately shut down for a period of time. We've heard this story before. Of course, December 15th was a vitally important day for signups as many people wait until the very last minute to sign up for coverage for 2020 on the Obamacare exchanges. Uh, thankfully, CMS announced on Monday that it had ultimately decided to offer an extension until Wednesday, December 18th at 3 a.m. Eastern, with an unidentified CMS spokesman saying that the deadline would be extended, quote, to accommodate consumers who attempted to enroll in coverage during the final hours of open enrollment, but who may have experienced issues, end quote. This was somewhat surprising, given that the Trump administration has slashed the advertising budget for ACA plans by 90%. They did so in 2017. Nonetheless, this addition of the, ex of the deadline will hopefully have positive impacts for ACA plan enrollment, which has been lagging slightly this year, and so we wait on final numbers there. So those 
those are my three submissions for the nice list. And fine submissions they are. Of course, it does beg the question as to what punishment has been meted out to your your CMS nominee. For sure. And John, who's been nice? Well, on my nice list are the various state legislatures and state health departments that are fighting the anti-vax crowd by trying to dispense with the religious uh, vaccine exemptions and uh, who also are pushing to continue uh, the release of more information about about vaccinations. The, there are two examples, uh, Connecticut and New Jersey. The New Jersey Senate is looking to pass one of the nation's strictest pro-vaccine laws uh, that eliminates the religious exemption for mandatory childhood vaccinations. Now, the New Jersey House of Representatives uh, passed this bill and the governor has indicated support. The Senate was going to take a vote this week, but that has been postponed due to anti-vax protests. But Senate leaders have indicated that they expect to move forward with a vote at some point. There have been a lot of outbreaks of childhood diseases in the U.S., including measles, mumps, and chickenpox. And a lot of this is due to lack of vaccinations. State li- states like uh, New Jersey and New York have suffered under these outbreaks. And a lot of these outbreaks have originated in groups that uh, use the religious exemption to vaccine. New York passed a similar bill uh, to New Jersey's earlier this year, but New Jersey is going even farther by extending the exemption exemptions to uh, the religious exemptions to higher education institutions. In Connecticut, the governor's office and leaders of the state's legislature just announced that they will put forward a similar bill this February. And that this is key in it uh, because uh, Connecticut is home to one of the biggest leaders of the anti-vax crowd, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. In addition, uh, Connecticut, uh, Connecticut has fought to keep vaccination info available to the public. They've been sued by anti-vax groups and parents that have tried to prevent the state from releasing aggregate data about uh, vaccination rates in various schools, uh, alleging that this would subject their children to social media harassment and would be a violation of the privacy of those kids who don't get vaccinated. Rather than roll over um, to these well-funded groups, uh, the state AG's office and the State Department of Health fought this effort in a lawsuit and won. So uh, these folks are on my list because herd Community is a very nice holiday gift for everyone, and so that's why they're on my list. Well, so much for those who've been nice. What about those who've been naughty? Who's going to get the coal? <laughs> well, I'm going to start by nominating that infamous ex-Indiana dynamic duo of HHS Secretary Alex Azar and CMS Administrator Seema Verma. Oh, where do you start? Well, they failed to come up with any cohesive policies to move the healthcare system in some innovative or at least not too harmful direction. Instead, like the non-starter legislative repeal and replace, they really haven't come up with anything better. So have simply continued with this sort of sabotage playbook uh, that Zach alluded to a little bit earlier. The drug importation MacGuffin aside, Azar can't seem to deliver a, a drug pricing law his boss the president can sign. Meanwhile, he's allowing Verma to continue to undermine Medicaid, first by encouraging 1115 uh, work requirement waivers, and more recently encouraged states to apply for block grant waivers, which are about as legal as the work requirements are. 
see back in court in DC. Any strategies that are apparent seem to cancel each other out. Azar recognizes that our underlying problems are social determinants in a very interesting speech uh, last year and seems to understand that Medicaid is a key to dealing with the addictions crisis. Yet he seemingly tolerates Verma's attempts to destroy public insurance. Meanwhile, he or someone is granting Section 1332 waivers for state reinsurance plans, yet at the same time going along with dopey risk pool endangering association health plans. Uh, schizophrenia seems to rule. Writing in Health Affairs a few days ago, Rachel Sachs noted, quote, the administration has not yet been able to move the needle on drug pricing by itself. Congressional action may be its best hope for policy change before the 2020 election. Hazel's speeches tend to be upbeat, as in his social determinant speech. But Verma is downright confrontational. In a speech in November this year, she said, quote, We cannot allow those who prefer the status quo, Medicaid actually applying to people, we cannot allow those who prefer the status quo to weaponize the legal system against state innovation. And let's be clear, she continued, it's not just state community engagement programs that are under attack. They want to prevent states from adhering to any principles of personal responsibility that could help our beneficiaries successfully transition of public assistance and prepare them to use private coverage. So why don't you just offer them job training? Why take away their health? Oh, never mind. And let's not forget the Title X family planning program that lies within Azar's administration. Uh, that is, seems to deny any uh, relationship between reduced contraception and the war against termination, or the attack on Section 1557 LBQT protections. Worse, Azar and Seema Verma cannot even seem to manage their interpersonal relationship, leaking damaging memos and looking ever more swampy, facing bad press, for example, over uh, the stolen jewellery claims that uh, Verma made, notwithstanding her taxpayer-funded multi-million dollar PR do-over. Things are so bad they've been called to the headmaster's study for a good dressing down. What an irony that their lecture on responsible and ethical behaviour should have been delivered by Vice President Mike Pence and Acting Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney. Ah, there are exemplars for you. Jen, who are you even called to this holiday? I have a couple nominees, Nick. Uh, my first uh, nominees are from the United States District Court for the District of New Hampshire, the dynamic duo of Magistrate Judge Johnston and District Judge McCafferty. The magistrate uh, decided uh, the United States Department of Justice versus Rico Jones decision this May, May of 2019. That is the case where the DEA was seeking droves of data from New Hampshire's prescription drug monitoring program. As I mentioned earlier, the uh, State Board of Pharmacy stood up to uh, the federal government on that front and made several arguments, one of which was that uh, the district court should come out similar to the district court case in Oregon, which had argued that such sweeps through um, private prescription data of patients uh, constitutes uh, Fourth Amendment violation uh, without a warrant and probable cause. And secondly, that even if the district court didn't like that decision, uh, that 
that the Supreme Court's very recent decision uh, in June of 2018 in United States versus Carpenter, uh, where the Supreme Court held that Timothy Carpenter's public movements, as captured by his cell phone site location data, were protected by the Fourth Amendment, controlled the case, and that prescription drug information, patient data, and health records were entitled to at least as much Fourth Amendment protection as an individual's public movements captured by their cell phone. Um, why this case deserves the coal, and as does its authors, is because uh, the court entirely ignored the Oregon decision, and in fact does not deal with it at all in its Fourth Amendment analysis, and also uh, ab abjectly refused to even address Carpenter or do any sort of analysis under its decision. So, yes, the state lost in that case that, as I've already mentioned, that case is currently pending before a three-judge panel in the United States Court of Appeals for the First Circuit. But just a poorly reasoned decision that ignored virtually all precedent and recent case law. So I'm going to give out um, coal on that. My honorable mention is the Trump administration. And you've already stolen some of my thunder, Nick, but um, I'm going to add to um, some, <clears throat> add to what you mentioned, implementation of the public charge rule. Uh, you know, this is a rule that requires immigration officials to reject applications from immigrants to enter or stay in the United States if they've received or are judged by the administration as likely to receive any of several public benefit programs um, tied to um, need. Um, that, of course, includes Medicaid um, and other benefit programs. Um, and many have predicted that the consequence of such a rule to discourage individuals who live in immigrant households from accessing such programs or applying for them in the first place, even when they are legally entitled to those um, benefits. Um, so that's my honorable mention. My third mention, if I have one more minute left, is the uh, the promotion of short-term health care plans. I know we have some insurance experts on the line, so I'll be quick about that. But the junk plans that the administration has, has pushed its weight behind while at the same time eliminating the marketing budgets and narrowing the, the window or scope of time for which you could actually apply for Affordable Care Act plans in conjunction, of course, has also operated to deny many folks access to health plans that would actually work for them or provide needed benefits. Professor Kogan, I, I'm I'm scared to ask. Well, you know who I'm going to. Yes, naughtiest, I do. Naughtiest of all is uh, Judge Reed O'Connor of Fort Worth, Texas. He uh, deserves an entire stocking full of coal. Uh, he's been involved in all sorts of uh, naughty behavior this last year. He promotes discrimination and cuts in health insurance nationwide. As for uh, discrimination, there are two issues. Uh, first, he's uh, really working hard to get rid of protections for LGBTQ folks. In October, he issued uh, a final ruling that enjoins an Obama administration rule that uh, gender discrimination uh, violates civil rights protections of the ACA. He ruled that it uh, violated the Administrative Procedures Act and the Federal Religious Freedom Restoration Act. This follows uh, a preliminary injunction he issued uh, a couple of years ago that did the same thing. But what's really uh, interesting is his original ruling was a basis for the Trump administration's rewriting of that regulation 
legislation last May. The second is his dis- uh, discrimination against women, and that is the infamous Diot v. Azar case. Judge O'Connor issued a permanent injunction in June granting uh, a religious exemption to two nationwide classes uh, that object to the Affordable Care Act's contraception mandate. Those classes uh, are basically individuals and any employer. It's the second uh, of his decisions pitting the Religious Freedom Restoration Act against the, the Affordable Care Act. In a nutshell, he basically said that any employer that had any kind of sincere re- religious belief covering contraception or any individual in the United States who objected to contraception would be able to buy insurance without the contraception uh, requirement that the ACA put in place and that the federal government could not penalize any individual or any insurance company who provided that kind of coverage. And because O'Connor certified this as a national class, it applies all across the country, even in the eight federal circuits that have taken contrary positions. So this decision is really bad because not only uh, does it uh, cut against the uh, circuit court decisions in uh, throughout the country, but essentially it rewrites the pooling and rating decisions in the individual and small group markets because it allows insurers to essentially create separate pools for these people. Finally, there's the ACA case. The decision came out, I guess, yesterday um, in Texas, the U.S. Uh, late last year, Judge O'Connor found the ACA was unconstitutional because the mandate penalty um, was uh, uh, reduced down to zero dollars by Congress. That meant that before this uh, law took place, if you didn't buy insurance and you were subject to a penalty under the tax code by getting rid of the tax, the the, uh, the Supreme Court's decision that upheld the ACA, at least in Judge O'Connor's mind, no longer applied. So the entire ACA was unconstitutional. It was appealed to the Fifth Circuit. The Fifth Circuit sent it back to Judge O'Connor, uh, asking him uh, quite literally to pick through the ACA and figure out which parts would be unconstitutional, would remain standing. Essentially, this makes O'Connor uh, uh, the National Health Insurance Commissioner, or I should say Commissar. And that's a really disturbing thing to look forward to next year when he issues his decision. Do you think there's any chance that the Supreme Court will take up the Fifth Circuit's opinion directly, as some of the states are arguing, or are they too going to punt and let this one sink back into uh, the heartland of Texas uh, and then arise much later and probably after the next election. Well, it all, I think, boils down to whether the four uh, liberal members of the court are are uh, a gambling bunch. I, I think that if, obviously, if they take it now, they're going to have to bet that the chief justice will side with them in upholding it. Of course, if Trump wins re-election, it's safe to say that if any of those four leave the court, uh, they will be replaced by somebody who would get rid of the ACA. So I, I, I don't know whether they're willing to do it, but my guess is that's going to be part of their calculation, whether they think that it's better to do it now or, or let it ride out and see what happens down the line. I suppose we should sort of add an honorary mention when it comes to who's been nice to Judge King, who dissented in the Fifth Circuit in a, a somewhat pithy opinion. I would agree. All right. And that leaves us with Zach, I think, on the, uh, the, uh, the cold side, right? That's right. Let's see if I can bring us down even more. 
<laughs> I have three submissions for my naughty list. First is the Association for Accessible Medicines. The AAM is a nonprofit trade association that represents the interests of generic and biosimilar manufacturers and distributors. Uh, AAM has been very active and instrumental in blocking state-level legislation that would seek to drive down the costs of prescription drugs. Uh, it's responsible for the litigation strategy that ultimately blocked Maryland's generic anti-gouging law on, in my estimation, very curious dormant commerce clause. Uh, clause grounds in the spring of 2018 before a three-judge panel of the Fourth Circuit. Uh, AAM is at it again. In November, AAM filed a lawsuit in the Eastern District of California against California Attorney General Xavier Becerra, uh, seeking a preliminary injunction against California's new law, AB 824. In short, the law makes California the first state to prohibit pay-for-delay agreements between brand name and generic manufacturers in which brand name pharmaceutical companies give something of value to generic drug makers in order to prevent them from bringing patent challenges and ultimately entering the market altogether. Uh, the California law makes these deals presumptively anti-competitive and provides provisions for massive civil fines. Uh, it's set to take effect on January 1st. The case, AAM v. Becerra, U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of California, is currently pending. In its motion for preliminary injunction, AAM argues that the Commerce Clause is violated by the law because it has no limit in application to agreements that were finalized or negotiated in California, recycling an earlier argument that, that was effective in the Maryland litigation. It also argues that the law is preempted by federal policy on antitrust, relying on the Actavis case. Uh, fascinatingly, it also raises an Eighth Amendment challenge, asserting that the law exerts an excessive fine because the fine is disproportionate to the conduct and that also its due process rights were violated. Um, on its website, AAM states that, quote, banning patent settlements and prohibiting biosimilars from being eligible for pass-through status are all anti-competitive attempts by brand companies to extend their government-provided monopolies and keep drug prices high. So I'd encourage listeners to follow that California litigation. My second submission on the naughty list is Ballad Healthcare. Formed out of a merger between Mountain States and Wellmont and constituting a notable cross-state merger that relied on state-based COPAs, Certificates of Public Advantage, to avoid extensive Federal Trade Commission review, Ballad Healthcare has recently been in the news for its access cuts and a aggressive collection techniques. According to Modern Healthcare, Ballot has filed more than 5,000 lawsuits against patients during its first year in, in existence in an attempt to collect revenue. Uh, it's the only hospital provider now covering a region the size of New Jersey, 21 counties largely centered in rural Appalachia, Tennessee, Virginia, North Carolina, and Kentucky. Uh, according to the Tennessean, Ballot has downgraded numerous services following the merger from uh, NICU services and trauma Trom center services, uh, leaving few options for rural residents and increasing travel times for up to an hour for patients who need uh, immediate services. It has also allegedly increased costs by shifting care from clinics to hospitals, allowing it to charge facility fees, which we all learned a lot about from Elizabeth Rosenthal. Uh, last year, Ballard was in the news after eliminating dozens of healthcare jobs following the merger, and it's gotten so bad that it has actually attracted uh, protesters after it closed uh, neonatal intensive care unit in Kingsport, Tennessee. Uh, in areas already hard hit by the loss of manufacturing jobs, these cuts and shifts have harmed access to health care in rural Appalachia. My final nomination for the naughty list this year is the easiest punching bag of all, and it is the U.S. Congress. Uh, just earlier this week, in addition to delaying and bickering over solutions to solving the pharmaceutical drug pricing crisis, we have a Senate uh, effort 
effort led um, largely on the on the right by Chuck Grassley. We also have a House effort uh, led by the Speaker. Uh, no major news on either of those fronts before the end of the year. But in addition to its end of the year spending bill, Congress has reportedly decided to repeal the ACA's Cadillac tax, a 40% tax on insurance plans with exceptionally high actuarial values. The goal when these taxes were developed was that employers would be taxed if they offered these types of plans, which are often offered to high-income employees, so that employers would stop offering them. As is the case with a good amount of policies that seek to rein in costs, the tax has been delayed annually, uh, similar to the SGR story from the late 90s and early aughts, uh, and was currently set to go into effect not until 2022. Uh, However, reportedly, the Cadillac tax repeal is part of the the end-of-the-year funding measure that has been adopted. According to The Hill, quote, health economists warn repealing the tax will take away an important lever for driving down health care costs, end quote, and the repeal will cost the government about $200 billion over 10 years. So I actually lost a little internal bet with myself here because I thought one of your nominees would be the group Dr. Patient Unity, the dark money group that was lobbying against the surprise bill fix that we then found out was actually being funded by uh, the uh, venture capital-based emergency care organizations that would actually lose money if that happened. It was, uh, Nick, it was uh, one of the initial uh, submissions that made the first cut, but we live in an era where we have an excessive amount of nominations for your naughty list. Shall I order more coal for next year? I think maybe. I think that may be in order. Well, time is not our friend, and some of us have some last-minute cyber shopping to do. But wait, what's this I hear? It sounds like the elves have invited some friends over to sing us some carols. My, my, John, who did you invite? I think you'd be surprised who I invited over. I'd like Alex Azar and Seema Verma. Uh, that's the Secretary of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Administrator of CMS to sing carols for me. These two have been at the center of the cutting and slashing of insurance under the Trump administration. They've supported work requirements for Medicaid recipients. They've pushed the sale of junk insurance, like short-term is, uh, and association plans um, that offer meager coverage. They've supported the administration's efforts to undo the Affordable Care Act, and they've promoted ridiculous uh, market-based solutions to the problems of excessive prices, among other nonsensical policies. A recent study uh, that was uh, just in the uh, New York Times linked the lack of health insurance to higher death rates. So if cutting back on health insurance kills people, the policies pushed by these two folks are literally killing Americans. So why would I want them to come to my house and sing to me? Well, there's a couple of reasons. First, I want them punished. They hate each other. And uh, as as Nick pointed out, like two bratty siblings, the administration had to drag them over to the White House and tell them to stop fighting. Not that the fighting has been bad for Americans, according to the press. The feud has uh, hurt Trump's uh, healthcare agenda, slowed down the rollout of new policies, and undermined efforts to maintain policy consistency. Trump doesn't care about the details of policy. He relies on these two to help them out, and their fighting has sort of balled that up. Uh, nevertheless, I want to punish them by forcing them to you know, sit down and learn these songs together, practice together for many hours. Then I want them to come to my house, stand on my porch, sing carols to me, uh, and then I'm going to release my two dogs on them. Um, the second reason is 
is practical. While they're practicing and singing and being chased around my yard by the dogs, they can't cause any more health trouble. I do have to ask, do you have a song in mind? Uh, one that came to my mind while you were speaking was a, uh, a hit from a couple of years ago by CeeLo Green. Uh, that uh, I, the name of which I will not repeat on this um, child-friendly pod. I, actually, I don't have any particular one in mind. Uh, I looked through actually various lists of popular Christmas carols uh, to get ready for this, and I found no one that I really wanted. I, I actually want them to sing as many as possible before I release the dogs on them. That's the key, isn't it? It's the dogs. Yeah. All right. So I invited uh, a chorus of hugely impressive women who testified before the Intelligence Committee during the impeachment hearings and frequently schooled their ridiculous male adversaries. So I'd love to hear some smart harmonies from Ambassador Mary Jovanovich, Dr. Fiona Hill, and Professor Pamela Carlin. My special request is they sing the funk classic Impeach the President, which was originally recorded by the Honey Drippers in 1973. But my extra special request is they sing it in Ukrainian. Zach? Thank you, Nick. And I don't know if, uh, if we should consider that uh, we're not only inviting people to our front door to sing, but also to be chased by our dog. So that, that adds a little bit uh, to this to this question. I, like John, had initially suggested Alex and Seema. Uh, I'd like them to sing All I Want for Christmas is You. Um, but I'm going to change it up a little and invite uh, Judge Jennifer Walker Elrod and Judge Kurt Englehart of the Fifth Circuit uh, to my door. And what's interesting to me about uh, nominating them is not just to question them about the substance of their opinion in Texas v. Uh, U.S., which was released yesterday, but also to ask them about the timing of the decision. Curiously, and very similar to Reed O'Connor last year, the Fifth Circuit did not release its opinion until the end of open enrollment, quite literally hours after open enrollment for the Affordable Care Act concluded on December 18th at 3 a.m. Eastern, the Fifth Circuit released its opinion vitiating the Affordable Care Act's individual mandate. I think many of us that teach in the area were ultimately unsurprised by the substance of the decision here. But the timing highlights something interesting to me. And it is the case that it seems as though, at least drawing from the example of Reed O'Connor and the two Fifth Circuit judges, that in the litigation involving Texas v. U.S., in which the ACA hangs in the balance, judges are more than happy to destroy legally the inner workings of the Affordable Care Act, but are ultimately uncomfortable uh, actually implementing those decisions uh, immediately to the point where they don't even necessarily want to release the opinion at a point in which the uh, individual market could be harmed. So I think that tells us something interesting about the political stability of the Affordable Care Act going forward. And finally, Jen, who have you invited to serenade us? Well, after listening to you, to you gentlemen here today, I think that we should get some comedians to come by <laughs> uh, and sing All I Want for Christmas is My Mental Health. So maybe um, former Supreme Court clerk Gretchen Rubin, happiness guru, and uh, like you, Nick, a successful podcaster who runs the podcast Happier or someone like that should come and talk to us. But um, uh, all jokes aside, my list are a couple of women involved in the law who've done a wonderful job this year. I'll, I'll pick a trio of them uh, to come and sing to me. Michelle Rico Jonas, who is the custodian at the uh, New Hampshire Prescription Drug Monitoring Program, who, as I said, is waging a great war against the Drug Enforcement Administration. Rhonda Goldfein, who is the executive 
executive director of the AIDS Law Project of Pennsylvania and is the vice president and secretary of Safe House in Philadelphia, who again is waging a, a battle against the federal government and the U.S. attorney um, for the Eastern District of Pennsylvania. And last but not least, of course, to round out the trio, Justice Sotomayor, who has sort of led the way in these digital privacy cases and her sort of concurrences in several cases recently, including her um, joining the majority opinion in Carpenter. So I would love to have those three women come and sing anything to me that they want to sing on my doorstep so I can so I can thank them. And I'm not going to sick dogs at anybody this year. Well, there's upbeat for you. And that was the year in health law. Thank you for joining us. Uh, you can find two of the elves on Twitter. Uh, John is at J.A. Kogan Jr., J.R., and Jen is at Jen D. Oliver. Great festive fun. Thank you all for joining me. Thanks, Nick. Thanks a lot. Thank you for raising my elf esteem, Nick. <laughs> so show notes are at tour.com. I'm Nicholas Terry, N-I-C-O-L-A-S-T-E-R-Y on Twitter. Thank you for joining me and have a legally interesting but healthy holiday. Ho, 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 ho.